Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, I would uh, call you to open up your Bibles with me to Philippians, and specifically to Philippians chapter 1, as tonight we're going to be reading verses 7 through 11. As you know, Paul uh, wrote this letter to the Philippians from a jail in Rome. Epaphroditus had brought him a gift from the Philippians, and then he had in turn carried back Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul was obviously very grateful for their assistance to him, but he was more concerned with the well-being of their congregation and their growth in grace. And so he, uh, after his initial uh, salutations, immediately launches into a prayer for them. Uh, and of course, it raises the question, how should pastors and elders pray for congregations? What should be the the substance of our prayer. What are the most important things that we should be praying about? And we, we gain a lot of insight, a lot of guidance as we look at the way that Paul was praying for these congregations in Philippi that he was so very concerned with. Uh, as I said, there's so many different um, similarities between uh, those congregations in Philippi and, and our own. These were essentially, uh, it was a military colony, much like Fayetteville is a military colony in so many different ways. So uh, here we have a, a people who were beloved of this particular pastor who had planted uh, the gospel in that place, and now he is sending his greetings and his prayers for them. Hopefully we will learn much from what he has to say tonight, but before we go to the word of God, let us go to the God of the word and let's ask for his help. O oh, Sovereign Lord, we ask now, Lord, that you would illuminate us inwardly, that you would help us to understand your word, help us to apply it in our own lives. In this word of the apostle, we see so much love being expressed by this pastor. These were a people who were often in his mind and always in his heart. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn how to pray for one another from the example of your apostle Paul. Now, Lord, please help me to divide the word aright. Help me uh, not to go astray, to say anything that is not strictly in accordance with your word. And I do pray, Lord, that in all things Christ would increase and that we and I in particular would decrease. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 11. I do remind you this is the word of God, inerrant, inspired, and true in all that it teaches. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, Paul here is continuing his prayers. I, I understand that, you know, beginning a sentence or beginning your reading at a semicolon is not the, uh, the, the best, but uh, I did want to divide it there because he really does change uh, course just slightly, and I needed to uh, cut short the last uh, sermon so that it would not go over an hour. But uh, uh, in this case, we have Paul praying, obviously, for the Philippians. This were, these were congregations whom he knew 
whom he loved, whom he was constantly praying for to the Lord. But what does he pray for? What does he pray for these congregations? I mean, he knew many things about them. He knew the members of the congregation. We'll see him speaking about particular people within the congregation. He's going to deal with problems, problems of health, problems of relationships within the congregation itself. But what are the meta uh, narratives that he's dealing with? What's one of the most important things, the overarching themes in his prayer for this people? Well, it's not their medical issues. They were important, obviously, but he doesn't put them first and foremost. It wasn't their financial needs. Uh, He knew that they had things that they needed, but he doesn't pray for them immediately. Instead, he prays that they would have three critical things in particular in this prayer. He prays that first, they would have love. And not just ordinary love, you know, or sentimental love, a feeling of affection for one another, but rather that they would have abounding love. That's what he prays for, agape love, that highest form of love, the love of the Christian for Christ, Christ for his body and so on, that great love that should mark Christians. He prays for that. The second thing he prays for is knowledge, that they would grow in their knowledge of the faith and its substance. And the third thing that he prays for is discernment. He prays for all three of these things. Now, uh, as he begins uh, in verse 7, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. He starts out by saying, it's right for me to love you, to have this fellow feeling, to to think well of you, to think highly of you. And he's not saying that to puff them up. He uh, he says uh, it's a moral obligation. It's a proper thing. It's the right thing to do, to, to thank God for you all. As I think of you, as I think of the way that you have labored, as I think of the the grace that God has shown in your congregation, the way that he's been working in your midst, the right thing to do is to thank God. Have you ever thought of that thanksgiving to God as a moral obligation, as a duty that we have? Not a drudging, you know, duty, the, like the duty to pay our taxes on April 15th or something that, you know, comes around and we don't really want to do it, but we know we have to. But rather something that, yeah, it's right. We should do this. For instance, you know, the kind of the obligation that we have to honor uh, the, the a heroic death to to say, yes, it is, it is morally right that we mark the life of this individual who died for the right reasons. There should be that, that, that feeling of, I'm, I'm doing this. Yes, I want to do this, but I should be doing this. We seem to have lost a lot of that within our society, the idea that there are certain moral duties, certain honors that should be paid. Paul feels this within his heart. I should honor you. I should be thankful to you because in... In doing so, I'm thankful to God because I see the evidence of his work in your midst and I should be so thankful for that. He has made you fellow workers of grace. You've come alongside me. You've provided me with what I need to make my defense. He speaks of his defense here. His defense really, although he was defending himself before Caesar's court, what was he really defending? He was defending the gospel. This was an apologia. He was... Whenever he is called before rulers like Felix and Festus and, and uh, Agrippa, he, he, what does he do? He, he defends the gospel. He talks about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. First in his life, why am I here? What's happened? But why did I get into this situation in the first place? Because I was speaking for the Messiah. 
I was speaking for Christ who called me. And he explains these things and he makes his defense for the truth of the gospel that saved him. And he said, you have a part in this. I mentioned this last week, but I, I hope that you have, whoops, I hope you have that idea yourself that the missions of this church are something that you take part in, even if it's just by prayer. And you know, we should never say that, that the phrase just in prayer I mean, I, I often say, don't I, that prayer is the most powerful thing that we can do for one another? And that's something that's coming out here. Paul is praying for these people because this is the most effectual thing that he can do for them. When you pray for the ministries of this church, when you pray for me, I feel it. And I'm not kidding. I, I know in one sense, I mean, I can't know infallibly or anything like that. I don't have, I, I'm not refuting the cessation movie that we were all blessed by on Friday or anything like that. I'll have a word of knowledge that you've been praying for. Right? No, I just... I know somebody or some bodies have been praying for me when I stand up and the Lord works in, in my life, helps me to stand straight, to, to continue speaking, to not lose my place and so on. That is a way in which you support the ministry of this church. Or when I go over to Uganda, the financial requirements of doing that are immense. And yet, you do that. And so you are helping. I, I was, as I said, last time I was preaching to a church in Capshura that uh, it was literally, it's, it's just sticks holding up corrugated iron at this point in time. But from their perspective, it's a tremendously uh, expensive undertaking. And they were unable to do that because of funds that were given to TCWM by churches like ours. So you are fellow workers of grace in that particular gospel ministry 8,000 miles away. Think about that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Why do we do that? Because it's the right thing to do? Well, yes, there's a moral obligation to be involved in these things, but there should be a joy in your heart at being able to take part in these things. That's what Paul feels, these fellow laborers. You are fellow laborers. He says also that he longed to see them again. He loved them and he longed to be with them. And he says, he reinforces the fact that he loves them. They would have known that because he wants them to understand that everything that he's about to say to them is for their good. It's his intention to do them good. He wants them to take heed to his admonitions, to his advice, because he loves them. This is very important, brothers and sisters. When you receive advice from somebody who feels indifferent towards you, well, maybe he likes me, maybe he doesn't, maybe he has my best interests at heart, maybe he's just following his own agenda. You get that all the time from politicians. One of the big misunderstandings that people have is they think that politicians who are on their side love them and that when they're you know, promoting their agenda, it's because they really love them, I'm for you, and so on. Well, no, it's there for them. They're for themselves and for their own agenda. But Paul, he's for them. He really is. He loves them. He wants to see them prosper. He wants to see them grow. God is my witness, he says. He yearns deeply for these Philippians, not just to see them, but to see them grow. And that should be the desire of every pastor, every shepherd, every elder, every officer. Deacons should want to see the people in their congregations prospering, and not just financially, but rather prospering in the Lord, growing in grace their families becoming stronger, their faith becoming stronger, the links between them becoming stronger, the church becoming healthier as a result. He admits, though, as he's about to uh, you know, launch into this prayer for them, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Well, 
if it's going to abound more and more, he's admitting there is room for growth. It is not perfect yet, obviously. They, they haven't arrived at perfection in this world. Uh, and as they're reading, therefore, they need to strive. You still need to grow. There's more for you to be doing. It's very tactful the way he says it, but of course, he's saying, you know, my, my prayer is that you would continue to mature, that you would, we would grow. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. Paul admits, of course, that he himself also has not arrived. I'm not perfect either. In Philippians 3, 12 through 14, he says, not that I have already attained, or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's, he's kind of creating an image there, isn't he? Of He's running a race and encouraging those behind him. Come on, follow me as I follow Christ, come after me. So yes, he's telling the, you know, the Philippians, frankly, you have not yet arrived. You're not yet perfect in Christ, but then again, who of us is? Not me. One of the things that I always remember is as I preach to you, I'm preaching to myself. Everything that I've gone over as I've prepared a sermon is something that I've had to apply to my own heart. Often, it's been very painful. The funny thing is I step on my own toes as I prepare these sermons. And I have to admit, there's a long, long way for me to go before I'm perfect. I won't reach the finish line till I enter into glory. I know that. But my desire is that we together would be striving, that we would all be running towards that goal. And that's what Paul wanted. He admits they have made progress. They have love. But he desires that it would be perfected. I love the way that Hendrickson puts it. He says that his desire is that the ocean of their love may rise to its full height, overflowing its entire perimeter. In fact, that it may thus abound more and more, that their love would overflow into the world. And that should be the case with the church, shouldn't it? There should be an overflowing love, abundant love, abounding love within our, me, uh, our, our congregation that would overflow to others. His main desire, in fact, love, agape, is going to be one of the themes. Love and joy are something that just leap out of this letter again and again. His desire is that their love would abound, that their agape love would be something that was evident to everybody around them, especially the members of the church. They would feel it. I, I love the way also that William Hendrickson defined that agape love, uh, the way he speaks about it. Uh, this is the definition that he gives. And as I, as I read this definition that uh, William Hendrickson gives, don't just think about what it is that he's saying it is. Think also about what he says it does, what agape love does when we have it in our heart. He says this, the love of which Paul speaks is accordingly intelligent and purposeful delight in the triune God, the spontaneous and grateful outgoing of the entire personality to him who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and consequently the deep and steadfast yearning for the progress of his kingdom and for the true prosperity of all his redeemed. This yearning becomes manifest in one's attitude, humility, tenderness, the forgiving spirit even towards enemies, in words of encouragement, truthfulness and mildness and in deeds of self-denial, loyalty and kindness. The best description of love is found in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Of course, 1 Corinthians 13 says this in verses 4 through 7. 
And you've heard this, no doubt, at, at marriages, or weddings, sorry, all the time. Hopefully it's part of your marriage as well, not just in the wedding ceremony, but it continues on. The, the love manifests itself. But 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you ever think about how love makes us small and other people large, particularly Christ? Love makes us outwardly focused, not inwardly focused. One of the signs that our, our society doesn't understand love at all is the way that we are so inwardly focused, so narcissistic. We have this awful self-love, which is no love at all. It's pride. That's all it is. Well, Paul, Paul knows that the, that's not what animates the Philippians. They have an outwardly focused love. They love one another. They desire to see one another built up. They desire to come alongside one another, to help one another, to gift one another, to, to be poured out upon one another. Do I have something that will help my brother? I will give it to him. And I'm not even going to think about it because it is what he needs. And then knowing without, you know, doing the, he better give me something back later on. You know, when I've got trouble, if he doesn't give me, you know, that kind of thing, keeping accounts, but rather simply expecting, my needs will be taken care of. Do you know, I, I do that not in a, I, not in a selfish way, but um, one, I was talking with somebody and they said, don't you, don't you worry about your, your financial needs in the future and so on? And I, I thought, well, you know, in one sense, you know, Taxes, yes, I worry about you know, being able to pay the government and things like that. But I don't worry about my financial needs because I'm part of the body of Christ. I don't worry that I'll be destitute, left without anything because of you, because of Christ, because he's made me part of his body. I, I've seen people who have been raised up very high suddenly fall very low and be completely destitute because they have nobody to turn to. But ever since I became part of the body of Christ, and I don't mean just my financial needs. Brother, do you need help to get somewhere? Did you need this item? Can we help you do this and so on? The love of Christ has been evident in my life through the body of Christ reaching out to me. That should be a normal part of our, our lives. Expecting nothing, simply doing it because it's the thing that Christ would do for us. He showing the example. Now, he wants them to have this abounding love, but this is of critical importance. It's this fully developed, proper love never travels alone. It is always accompanied by other virtues, and it always functions with knowledge and discernment. That's always part of it. Knowledge by itself, without love, let's face it, makes people insufferable. The unloving person, the more they learn, the more they become arrogant and painful to be around. I have been with people who are geniuses, who I've just wanted to get out of, you know, I can't, this, this, he is so full of himself. It drives me crazy. And then I've been with these intensely humble people who are also geniuses. And you, you could spend the rest of your life just listening to them Talk about something else, you know, anything. I don't care, whatever, you know, because there's so much wisdom. And it's made easy to absorb because of the love that they have, obviously. 
Knowledge apart from love makes you, as one commentator puts it, a spiritual zero. It just puffs up. But love builds up, and it makes your knowledge worthwhile, helpful, and good for you. It enhances the quality of that knowledge, the love that you have for the brotherhood. But we must have knowledge. Love and knowledge have to go together. They have to travel together. Uh, Calvin said this, for the true attainments of Christians are when they make progress in knowledge and understanding and afterwards in love. Love and knowledge together will produce discernment. This is a word that, uh, that's kind of fallen out of our lexicon for some reason, discernment. But discernment is so very important. Uh, possibly the best dictionary that was ever produced, Webster's 1828 defines discernment this way, the power or faculty of the mind by which it distinguishes one thing from another as truth from falsehood, virtue from vice, acuteness of judgment, power of perceiving differences of things or ideas and their relations and tendencies. The errors of youth often proceed from the want of discernment. Brothers and sisters, the church desperately needs discernment. And we should understand discernment as part of love. Really, I'll try to unpack that. Without discernment, a person who possesses love may have a great deal of eagerness and and enthusiasm. They can be involved in all kinds of things. They can donate to all kinds of of causes. And the motives, the things that animate them are worthy. Their intentions in doing these things, they're all honorable. And yet that person can be doing more harm than good because of the way that they're spending themselves, because they've been misled, for instance, doctrinally. We saw an example of that, those of you who were here on Friday at the, uh, watching the cessation film. Now, Francis Chan is a man who is manifestly, he's full of love. He really is. But he went on a mission trip to Myanmar, and he was conned like that. There were these people who had arranged, and I've, I've heard this from other missionaries on the ground, what they do is they'll go into a, a village, and the village is often filled with, with non-Christians, Buddhists. And what they do is they say, okay, we want you to fake deafness, we want you to fake blindness, and when the American comes up and lays his hand on you, you're going to go, oh, I see, I see, or I, I hear, I hear, or you're going to fake being crippled, and then suddenly you're going to stand up straight, and the American is going to think that he healed you. And you know what's going to happen? More Americans are going to come, and they'll come to the village, and they'll heal you guys again and again and again and again, and they'll bring money with them. And here's some money for doing this. And they pay these people off to act. And these Americans come in, like Francis Chan, and they go, be healed. And I see, I hear. Now this is, this is like level one con artistry. It's really down at the bottom. This isn't like the sting or something. This isn't, you know, you don't need Paul Newman for this one. This is really low-level con artist stuff. But... What happens is we say, oh, I don't want to be critical. I don't want to, you know, overthink this. I don't want to question, uh, really, have the, the sign gift suddenly been restored in Myanmar, in this particular village, with Buddhists who know nothing about the gospel. Thinking a little bit more discerningly would have perhaps opened his eyes, but he didn't. He just wanted to believe. He was full of love. He was full of enthusiasm. He was full of eagerness, and he was conned, and it does more harm than good. What have you done? You've made Christianity into an evil method of making money. 
by doing that. Love without discernment can send people to hell. And that's what's happening with so many of these awful televangelistic, charismatic ministries. These people who go up, you know, they're, they're, they're grotesquely afflicted in one way or another, and they're desperate for healing, and, you know, Benny Hinn comes up and hits them with their jacket, or his jacket. And perhaps they fall back, but they're not healed. And then what happens is, some of the speakers said, many of those people eventually, they don't, just, they don't just say, Benny Hinn's a con artist, which he is. What they say is, Christianity is a fraud because they believe he's a representative of it. Discernment and love have to go together. To love also a Christ who is not the Christ of history and the Bible is to love a lie, and to love a lie is, is, is awful. To love religion that does not save, no matter how outwardly beautiful it is, no matter how many you know, pagodas or cathedrals it might have. or yeah, You go into these, uh, in every American uh, city of any, any size, you will see there will be one building with this giant spire, and on the top of it is an angel with a horn in his mouth. Which religion is that? Mormonism. It's Mormonism. It's a Mormon temple. These giant, beautiful buildings, built at incredible expense, and nobody going there is saved because they believe that Jesus is literally the spirit brother of Lucifer and that we'll be saved by faith after everything that we've done. That's not salvation by faith alone. And neither are they believing in the, the, the Christ of the Bible. But we don't have to look to Mormonism. I was talking to a pastor at the last, uh, at the last presbytery. He's in a, a liberalizing PCA presbytery. Um, and he was, he's having great difficulties in that presbytery, particularly with a man who does not believe Genesis 1 to 3 is, is historical. This man, he's a member of the PCA, he's an elder in the PCA, but he believes in evolution. He believes that Adam was simply the headwater of the race. He was picked out by God uh, from a race of hominids that had developed by evolution and set apart, but he doesn't believe in the historical testimony of Genesis 1 through 3. And so he has, he's objected to this man's presence within the presbytery, rightly so. This man should not be teaching the people of God because he's full of error. This is not truth. And he's not loving anybody by teaching them lies. And the response of the, the presbytery has been, oh, you hate that brother. You're not being loving. Now you go hug that out. You two go off. Go, go to lunch. He says, I've had lunch with this guy more times than I can count at this point. And they always, you know, whenever he comes back, it's always, hug it out, hug it out. It's not a matter of love. He, you know, he, he doesn't have any animus towards this man in and of himself. But what the man believes is a lie from the pit of hell. You can't hug that out. <laughs> it doesn't work. If I love that man's soul and the souls of the men who he is overseeing, how can I let him teach lies? If I love God, how can I deny the truth of his word for the sake of saying, let's be at peace, brother? Peace should never come at the expense of truth. I think we've forgotten that as a society. Remember, to be truly loving is to love the truth. They both have to go hand in hand. So what's the purpose of this that he's praying for? That they would have this, this love and discernment together, bonded together. Well, it's so that we can smash Armenians to dust on the internet, of course. That's why we need it. No, that's not it. Not at all. 
What does he say in verse 10? That you may approve the things that are excellent so that you cannot just distinguish between true and false and good and evil and be able to point that out to others correctly, but that you would love the things that are good. After you distinguish between truth and error, what are you supposed to do? Love the truth. Follow the truth. When you see that which is good and that which is evil, what are you supposed to do? Do that which is good. What were you saved for, brothers and sisters? Not just to be saved, but to do good works. Once you know the work that you should be doing, be about it. So that discernment and that understanding is a vital part of your sanctification. It's not just the ability to distinguish, but once you've distinguished, to actually choose the good and to live it. One of the big problems that Solomon had, as full of wisdom as he was, he could distinguish between good and evil, but far too often he chose that which was evil. We can do that, brothers and sisters. But if we are going to be what God wants us to be, pure and blameless, once we've distinguished good from evil, we must choose the good and reject the evil. That's repentance, incidentally. Seeing that which is evil, turning away from it, and pursuing the good instead. Not just being sorry that you are attracted to sin. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to keep doing it. That's not repentance. So what was the, what's the end, though, of all this? What does he want for them? He wants, first off, and this is the minor, but it's a major minor, if I can put it that way. I know that sounds weird. Growth and grace. He wants them to have this rich spiritual harvest in their lives. He wants the word that came from Christ to do its work within their hearts and to produce that abounding harvest again and again, in season and out of season. He wants them to multi- uh, manifest rather the, the multitude of the fruits of heaven. He wants it to be the case that somebody coming into their congregation would see love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Where do you find that, incidentally? Galatians, it's the fruits of the Spirit. He wants them to be a congregation manifesting actively the fruits of of the Spirit amongst themselves and in their community that are undeniable. That was a wonderful thing about the the, the church, incidentally, in the apostolic age. There would be people who opposed it, but they couldn't oppose the good works that these people did. That they were genuinely loving was manifest to everyone. You know, uh, Celsus, for instance, in in a fit of pique, says, oh, what women these, these Christians have. You know, they were so manifestly different from the Roman pagan women. All of them were. And he wants them to live out the things that they know, to, to be manifesting the gifts won by Christ for his people. You remember when Christ ascended on high, we read in Ephesians 4, 8, and led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. He won these things at the cross for us, manifest them in the world is what Paul wants. These are the fruits that came through the victory of Jesus Christ, the indwelling presence within believers of the Holy Spirit. And he wants it to produce fruit and fruit and more fruit and to continue to abound as the harvest goes out and the gospel increases and the kingdom grows. He wants to see that happening in Philippi and then from Philippi throughout all of Macedonia. That's the way it should work. We should be thinking that way. We want this to be manifested in this congregation here in Fayetteville and then to spread to Rayford, to Sanford, to wherever throughout this region. The fruits of the Spirit that are the gifts of Christ being manifested in our means and then growing organically as you and I go out into the world and sow the seed. You know, in a harvest, you don't take everything and then eat it all because then what happens? You starve to death in the next season. What do you do? You take a portion of the fruits 
and you replant them. And so we too should be thinking that way, taking a portion of that which God has given us and then taking the seed and planting it elsewhere so that we would grow. We don't want a giant mega ministry. I mean, we could probably you know, build out this property to seat 5,000 people. That should never be our objective. We want churches all over the place. That's healthy organic growth, not the mega mall church model. So the church that is full of these people manifesting these gifts is a soul-winning church. And what ultimately is the goal of all of this? You know, I talked about the, the minor major. What's the major major? What is, what is your chief end? What is your chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's not just the end of you. That's not your chief end. That's the chief end of the church to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we do that as we are individually increasing in sanctification. The highest glory of God comes from the gradual increase in redeemed men's likeness to him. That's Alexander McLaren. As you resemble Jesus Christ more and more because of your sanctification, the world notices. They can't help but do so. They may deny it. They may hate you. They may attribute your good works to the devil. They may say what is good is, in fact, evil. They know they're lying, incidentally. In my heart of hearts, when I opposed the church, I knew I was lying. I didn't realize <laughs> that until I became a Christian. That's one of the reasons why they get so frustrated. Ah! I can't stand these people because they're right. It's the truth. What do we hate the most? It's the sting of truth. Somebody insults you, and they say something about you that's manifest. You know, you are uh, ridiculously thin. Oh, you're a blimp. Oh, you look like a skeleton. That hurts, because it's true. Maybe. <laughs> it's close. But when it's not close at all, well, you know, that doesn't hurt. It's when it comes close to the mark. They get upset because we expose the darkness. They don't like that. Now, let me make one quick application of this. I know I've gone on for a while. Our desire should be that we are growing together as the body of Christ in our love, in our agape love, one for another and for Christ, and as a result, overflowing like that ocean to the world. The love that is manifested here should overflow more and more, and we should be manifesting the fruits of purity, growth and holiness in our own life, and therefore glorifying God in our families and in this congregation and then in this community and then beyond that through the world and doing that organically, naturally as we grow. Like, like a tree will bear fruit because of its very nature as it, as it grows. And the best way that we can help one another, although we may not think about it, is by praying for one another. Now, one of the things that he doesn't really touch on, he will later on, but it's something that I've been thinking about more and more, and I, uh, I, I think about it because I, I stumbled upon a comment by Alexander McLaren, who was, a, who was a preacher, about the power of prayer to really affect our relationships with one another. I'm not talking about the power of prayer overcoming a difference of opinion about evolution, uh, as I was before, but McLaren says this, we have many ways, thank God, of showing our love and of helping one another, but the best way is by praying for one another. All that is selfish and low is purged out of our hearts in the act. Suspicions and doubts fade away when we pray for those whom we love. 
Many in alienation would have melted like morning mists if it had been prayed about, added tenderness and delicacy coming, uh, come to our friendships, so like the bloom on ripening grapes. It's so very hard to hate somebody you pray for, isn't it? On a regular basis, for their good. Pray for one another, brothers and sisters. Obviously, it's the, it's the means of growth in another person's life. You can't change somebody's heart, but the Holy Spirit can, and we can pray that that work would be done. And it's a way of healing those relationships between us. Is there a problem between you and someone else in the congregation? Is there a problem between you and someone else in your family? Pray for that person in a loving way. Don't pray against them. Would you please take my stupid... You know, that... I've been prayed against in public. I'm not talking about that. Lord, would you please soften my heart towards this person? Would you please soften his heart towards me? Would you take away those things that stand between us? Would you help us to be able to empathize with one another, to to love one another as Christ loves us? That kind of thing. That kind of prayer. I guarantee you it will produce change. Not just as, as God works in the world as a result, but in your own lives. Let's go before the world, uh, changing God, and ask for his help. God, our gracious Father, I do now pray, Lord, that you would help us to put the things that we have read about into effect. Lord, it's one thing to say that we love others, but it's another thing to actively live out that love in our lives. We pray, Lord, therefore, that you would put your spirit in our hearts, that you would cause us to to love one another in a self-sacrificing, agape love kind of way, to pray for one another to be co-laborers in the gospel, to work together to see the gospel seed being planted all around throughout this world. Help us also, O Lord, to to lift up one another, to bear one another's burdens, to not be a, a congregation that tears one another down, but rather that build 